Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. And of course, just like our show open says... This podcast is about your favorite bird dogs, and this particular episode is going to cover everything from flushers to pointers, labs to Llewellyns, young pups to old dogs. This is our first ever Ask the Experts podcast focused on dog training, and it, uh, it comes as part of our annual Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign, which started way back in 2010. It runs the month of April every year, helping us generate funds for our habitat mission. Uh, you could learn uh, about Bird Dogs for Habitat at uh, birddogsforhabitat.org. It's on both of our websites, pheasantsforever.org and quailforever.org. And the moral of the story is every dollar that you donate through this campaign or become a member through the specific campaign offer that we have running right now with Orvis, a custom Orvis dog collar. Every dollar you donate, we get matched and it becomes $5 automatically for our habitat mission through the Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign. And uh, one of those folks adding that a dollar of match is the sponsor of this particular Ask the Experts podcast, and that's Sport Dog Brand Electronic Dog Training Products. Uh, not only the sponsor of this particular episode, but our national sponsor at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So the question you're probably asking yourself is who are the experts we're bringing in for our dog training episode? And it are two names that are no secret to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience. They've been on this podcast themselves uh, independently, and they've been on the stage at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic for pretty much every single one of them uh, that we've had. And I'm referring to Tom Dockin of Dockin's Oak Ridge Kettles and Josh Miller of Riverstone Kennels. Fellas, thank you so much for making time to join us again. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, thanks, Bob, and uh, thanks, Sport Dog, for, for sponsoring this and, and making sure that uh, we can do the podcast. And um, we have a unique uh, approach to the Ask the Experts. Um, we, we crowdsourced all the questions, just like we do on Rooster Road Trip, which means the, uh, the brains behind Rooster Road Trip comes back for this episode of On the Wing Podcast, and that's Andrew Vavra, the Director of Marketing. Uh, Andrew is going to serve as a co-host, and he's collected all the questions via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, I don't know. Did we TikTok this, Andrew? Um, I didn't Snapchat. I didn't TikTok. I feel like we, we had a good enough representation from uh, our, our social media followers uh, to, to have a pretty good podcast here. And I don't know. I think I'm going to have to 
add another bullet point to my job description. That's just hurting answers from strangers on the internet. If that's, if that's <laughs> the only thing that gets me back on the podcast, I might as well take credit for it, I guess. <laughs> well, when you're good at something, we ride with it, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll, t- I'll take it. <laughs> so without further ado, because um, we have a pile of questions that came in through Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's social channel channels. Uh, where do you want to start, Andrew? Well, I think we should, uh, well, like any other good show, good movie, um, good podcast, people are curious in the story arc. Um, so let's let's learn about the, the origin stories of Josh and Tom. So how many dogs did you personally train before you could make a living doing it? And I think what they're getting at is just how did you get started? Um, and Tom, maybe we'll start with you. Well, I started off, I think like most guys do, I started off with my own personal dog and uh, it was a Labrador Retriever. And initially it was just, I wanted a a hunting dog for myself. I'd hunted over my friend's dogs uh, when we were in high school and got my own dog and started getting interested in doing some trialing, some field trialing back then. And as I say to people, in spite of me, my dog had uh, a lot of success on a national level and it just kind of set the tone for uh, that lifestyle and things that I wanted to do uh, moving forward. Uh, I had a full-time job doing something else, like a second shift job. And then I had the opportunity to, to work for somebody, start the process out, and uh, became uh, a vocation. And then, uh, you know, how many dogs do you go through? It You, you know, you when you get into it on a professional level, you have to be extremely efficient. You've got to, you got to learn what to do and what not to do. And I think the what not to do's are as big as the what to do's in order to move forward. So, you know, thousands and thousands of dogs later, I'm still learning. You know, the, in my mind, Tom Dockin has been a dog trainer since he was 12. Uh, so I want to know what you did before you were a dog trainer. What was that shift work you did? Well, I worked, uh, I don't know if the company is still named it, but I, I worked at Univac, uh, and that was, uh, in Roseville, Minnesota. That was a second shift. It, back then the, the computers were like the size of the empire state building. And, uh, and it was a test facility and I'm not a computer genius by any means. You know, in fact, Tina set up this podcast you know, for me today. So, but, um, it it was something I did. It was a four to 12. So I had, you know, during the uh, day to train and that's when I started training part-time professionally and then uh, just decided, uh, Hey, it's time to make a move. But yeah. So don't consider me a computer genius. (laughs) And another guy that's been training dogs since he was 12. And I think the first time I ever saw Josh, was your your photo on Tom's website with the uh, the shed dog championship? Um, that was that was a few years ago now, wasn't it? It was actually a long time ago now. So uh, <laughs> so before before I get into my story, I'm going to uh, apologize because with uh, with spring training season also comes my spring allergy season. So that's my why I have a little bit of a scratchy throat here. But um, you know. It's funny, you know, my story is uh, almost eerily similar, you know, to Tom, where uh, it started off just one dog for me. And what's kind of neat for me is, uh, so my, uh, I was kind of the black sheep of my family when it came to our hunting. And so uh, my my grandfather had a cabin in northern Wisconsin that we would all travel to. 
uh, on the weekends during hunting season. And my family were big deer hunters. That's what they love to do. And so my grandpa had property across the road that I think it was an 80 acre chunk that they would all go in the mornings and go uh, deer hunt. And I just loved waterfall. And so uh, it was on a lake. And so I'd take out my little canoe and I'd set out my decoys. that looked a lot like two by four blocks with, uh, with uh, like tennis balls up on the top of them. And I'd go try to shoot a duck. And for whatever reason, I was just mesmerized by ducks. And so after a few years of doing this, I wanted really a companion to do that with. And that's why uh, I saved up my money. I umpired Little League games, saved up my dollars and purchased you know, my first gun dog which is funny because I purchased that dog the exact way I preach everyone not to purchase a dog today, which is, you know, just, you know, find an ad in the paper and there's a litter of puppies, you know, that's already there ready to go and just go pick one up. And, uh, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time with that dog and, you know, my personality is one that I never want to do something halfway. And so you know, I read all the books, watched all the DVDs and poured my heart and soul into this dog and uh, what really kind of led me down the professional route was I was actually in uh, in the dog aisle of a sportsman's warehouse in Woodbury, Minnesota. And, you know, just looking at the products that were there, and, you know, I'm sure there was, you know, an extra whistle or something that I wanted to get. And uh, a gentleman was in that that aisle and approached me and asked me, you know, oh, do you have a dog? And just started a conversation. Well, he ended up being uh, the secretary at the local retriever club. So he encouraged me to come out and bring my dog out. And yeah, I'm sure, uh, yeah, I'm sure he was you know, hoping he was going to coach me along and do all that. And so I, I show up there and I had no idea the level that I had Eason trained at because here I'm running with their master level dogs and he's like excelling. So everyone's like, oh my gosh, you got it. You got to run them in, you know, this test coming up. You should really enter them in this trial. And I remember the first event I ever went to, um, you know, I got a ribbon, which was the most expensive thing that I've ever received in my life. Uh, was that you know probably <laughs> two cent ribbon because it just it put, took me down this path of um, of wanting to you know, wanting to do you know test, wanting to trial, wanting to compete, and then that eventually led down the road of doing this professionally. But I'll echo what Tom said as far as um, you're always learning, and I totally agree. What not to do is probably even more important than what to do in a lot of cases. And so what I did before I started my own business is I actually uh, identified a number of, of different trainers. And Tom was one of them that I just wanted to soak up as much information I could. And so I spent as much time with them as I could just learning again what to do, what not to do and trying to soak up as much as I could. So then when I did start my own business, I didn't have one way of doing something. I had six, seven, eight ways of doing everything. And I think that's what really led me or at least started my path uh, to success in this. Hmm. It, you, I do remember you, did you win the very first national shed training championship? Am I remembering that correctly? I did. And actually it was with that dog that I just referenced. And so he, uh, he, he did it all. He did, he did everything. And so he it's really interesting. So that dog was so successful in so different avenues, you know, whether it was, um, you know, Tom's Nash, you know, shed stuff, um, you know, HRC, you know, whether we were field trialing, whatever, he was just, it was like every avenue we went into, he was, you know, successful. And I would love to take all the credit for that, but I know uh, that that's not, you know, not the case. It wasn't, it wasn't on me. Uh, it was him. He was very talented. He was very special. And, uh, and he taught me probably more than I could have ever taught him. But yeah, I thought probably this was last week and we we're sitting here and um, my daughter just turned two uh, yesterday. I have a six month old son, you know, my wife and our business and everything we have here. I looked around and I, I said to Whitney at the at dinner the other night, I said, you realize that 
we wouldn't have anything we have today if it wasn't for Easton. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty incredible thing to know everything that, that I have today really has a lot to do, if not a direct response to having that dog. That's, that's really special. Wow. That's a pretty major statement and they do definitely become part of our lives. Well, when it comes to special dogs kind of counteracting mistakes that we all make as, as handlers, um, let's kind of stick with that. So Josh, what are like the top three traits you feel make an ideal bird dog? Well, um, you know, first let, let's identify this, the word special. So everyone, everyone has a different uh, classification for what is special. Right. And I would argue because a lot of people say you only get that special dog once in a lifetime. Right. Well, I would argue that that you have certain special dogs at different stages in your life. Right. So like uh, Easton was a pivotal dog in my life for when I had him. Right. Um, I would say today I have a dog named Brock that I mean, Brock's one of those dogs that, you know, I would put in any situation, you know, test trial, you know, what have you anywhere. I mean, he is that caliber of a dog. Um, but if I had Brock, when I had Easton, he may not be what he is today. And if I had Easton, when I had Brock, he, you know, it, it's, it's incredible how I think certain dogs are inserted into your life at certain points. And to me, that's what's special is that I think they're all special just, you know, to what degree and where do they fit you know, into your life. And so, um, you know, I always like to talk about that because that's something that I think if we look at it that way. Uh, it kind of makes you appreciate each dog even more so than you already do for who they are and where they are in your life. And so I think that that's a big deal. Um, And then, you know, I think the traits, so I have a hard time identifying just three specific traits because, you know, what, you know, what is your, you know, ideal dog, right? So is your ideal dog the one that's going to go, you know, win a field trial, you know, pass all his tests, you know, and be that, you know, flames coming out of his feet, you know, when he takes off, is your ideal dog that dog is going to lay you know, at, on the floor with your kids for 362 days a year and for three days, you know, go be a proficient bird dog, you know, so there, there's so much, you know, that goes into it. Um, I'd say there are a few things that I would say a lot of us would, would all agree on. I think the on off switch is a big deal, no matter what breed you have, because, you know, we have, we have a full kennel right now. Every single dog that's in that kennel is a family slash hunting dog. And the family is the first part of that. Right. Like even even my dogs, my dogs, waterfall hunted, just waterfall hunted 94 days this season. That's a lot of days that we're just waterfall hunting. Those dogs are part of my family first and my hunting dog second. Right. So I, I think that on off switch is a big deal, because if you don't have that off switch, that dog's not coming into the house and being a part of your family if they can't shut it off. Right? So I think that that's a big part of it. Um, I think temperament goes with that as well. I think just, you know, the, a dog that wants to please you, that wants to be with you, that isn't butting heads with you all the time. I think, I think that's a, a very big deal too. And then I, I'd say the third piece, if it was me, is natural ability. And this is something that I, that I think we don't look at nearly enough when we look at breeding. Because for breeders, if you are breeding dogs that, you know, they might have the, you know, the pedigree, they may have the certain things you look for, but they were very difficult dogs to train and very difficult dogs to get to those levels. Those dogs are still going to produce what was natural in them, not what was forced into them. Right? So if we're breeding dogs are very natural at what they do, 
they are going to produce very natural puppies. And for you as the owner, you're going to, you're going to get a dog that's very easy to train because they naturally want to go do the things that they were made, you know, really made to go do. So, um, hard to narrow it down to just three, but I guess those are three that kind of jump out to me. Tom, anything to, to add there? Any other traits that you think make an ideal bird dog? Well, I, bloodlines would always be number one. I mean, you're you're looking for an athlete if you're looking for a hunting dog. That's that's what you're after. So you have to have a dog that has the natural ability to begin with. So you got good materials to start with, dog that actually wants to work. And then, then what time commitment do you have to what you're doing? And we hear guys say, well, you know, my first dog was fantastic. And this one just, you know, he, he likes to do it, but he's just, he just doesn't have all the other things. And I go, well, you know, how old were you when you got that dog? Well, I was 20. I said, how much time did you, well, we went everywhere. The dog was everywhere with me. He rode in the front seat of the truck. We spent 24 hours a day. And I said, I bet, I bet you knew what he was going to do before he even did it. Yeah. And, and he knew what I was going to do. Well, Fast forward, now maybe you're a little bit older, you have a family, you have a lot of different things going. How much time do you have to spend with your dog? Well, not as much as I used to. So in a lot of cases, those first dogs tend to be the ones that a lot of people go like, yeah, that dog was unreal. Now the other dogs have to live up to that. Well, there's a reason for that. So how much time commitment do you have to the dog that you have now? Now, it doesn't need to be 10 hours a day, but you know, what are the little things that you do around the house? And Josh made a good example that nowadays at least 98% of these dogs live in the house. And that on-off switch also can be, what are your expectations? What, how do I expect him to act when he's in the house? And it's their job to adapt to us, not our job to adapt to them from a behavior standpoint. So what rules are you going to set when they're little? And what are you willing to stay with so they become habits as well? So great bloodlines is, is always the biggest thing. I mean, a lot of times those dogs with really good bloodlines as far as hunting are going to turn out, you know, to a certain degree in spite of what you do. Now, it's the, it's the special things that are put on your shoulders. What are your expectations? What are you willing to put into them, you know, in order to make them or get them to the best of their ability? And the, uh, the unfair expectations angle on the second dogs is kind of uh, making me feel a little guilty here. <laughs> I have an 11-year-old yellow lab, and I also have a, a four-year-old French Brit. And the 11-year-old and I just, like, look at each other in the eyes. It's, it's the only communication we need, and we know exactly what's going on. Versus we look over at what we lovingly refer to as the little wiggly dog, and it's just like, what planet are you on right now, bud? <laughs> so it's just like... Maybe that's my fault. <laughs> well, then every breed is going to be a little different, too. Your Labrador Retrievers are, are used to working one-on-one -on -one close to a handler, whereas a lot of times your pointing breeds are they're geared differently. They're, they're geared to go out and work away from you as well. And then male versus female, maturity levels. I mean, in this podcast, we could you know go off on tangents on lots of little things, but every breed has its its own qualities as well. So don't 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 beat yourself up too hard. I'm, I'm, I'm having fun no matter what. And, and Bob knows that. Um, let's, let's stick with the, the pointing dog side of things for, for a second here uh, for pointing dog puppies specifically is playing around with the wing on a string. Like when they're young, is that bad for them or is it 
is it harmless as long as you don't overdo it? We've seen some conflicting narratives online about this. Uh, Tom, do you want to take a stab at that? I will. And, and you know, everybody's going to have different opinions on it. So let's say I'm just going to back up one step. Let's just say you had a retriever puppy and you threw something. He picked it up and came back to you. Would you go like, eh, that's a pretty good start? You go, well, yeah. Um, so let's say you have a pointing dog puppy. And the wing on the rod, for people who don't know it, you take a wing, tie it to a, a piece of line, hook it onto a fishing pole, and you flip it out in front, and that simulates a bird to see if your puppy will point it. So if I was going to, let's say I got good bloodlines, and I had six puppies there, and I was going to test each one, and let's say you flip that wing out in front, and half of them ran in to try to catch it, okay, which is what we don't want from a, a pointing dog, and you have the one that he just locks up tight on point. They go like, okay, well, I mean, there's a start. Now, and, and really the conflicting part of that is, well, then they won't use their nose because that's sight pointing. Well, I'm not going to do that the rest of the dog's life, but if he shows that tendency right off the bat that I want to point something, boy, I'm not going to dismiss. I'm not going to dismiss that. No different than if you went to a litter of puppies and you want one that's real social that comes running up to you, wants to be in your lap versus one, you know, that's shy and hanging around in the corner. Could I turn that shy one around? Yeah, I probably could, but why would I want to start there to begin with? So, you know, you don't have to do something for a lifetime. And I think that that's the biggest thing. The dogs aren't going to use their nose if all you do is sight point. But if I see one that all he wants to do is point things, no matter what it is, I, I would just consider that a good a good start. And then move on to the nose work. What's the oddest thing either of you guys have ever seen a bird dog point? So I, as an example, my first pup, when I brought her home at nine weeks old, she pointed a five-year-old. <laughs> on the sidewalk. Um, she developed to be a good bird dog either way. Uh, we've all had, I think, dogs, puppies that have pointed, butterflies. Um, I've had dog point a coyote before. And I've had dogs frequently point turtles. And I've talked about this before, um, where for some reason, and I've talked to Bob West about this as well, that he's, he's encountered pointers that, that lock up on turtles pretty frequently. Anything uh, strike you as, boy, I've, I've encountered that too? I One of the, the strangest ones that I had was I had, now this was back when I was field trialing off horseback. So yeah, it, for those of you that have not, have not seen that, when a dog's on point and the gallery rides up, everyone will stop and watch you know, the, the handler get down and work the bird. So I had, I had a short hair that I was training that he would, anytime he saw a horse stand anywhere, he would back it because he thought that that horse was watching uh, someone go work a bird. It was like every time he saw a horse, he, he'd back it. So that was probably one of the goofiest ones you know, that I had. Um, but I want to echo just real quick, you know, what Tom was saying, because uh, I, I totally agree. So I, I have been uh, on record on that, the national pheasants forever stage saying that I wish that they would take the wing and string out of any kind of, of uh, pointer program. And the reason that I say that is, is just what Tom had mentioned before, where the problem is, is that we get infatuated by these cool things, right? Because 
there's no question when you throw a wing out there, if it's a butterfly, if it's a robin, and you have a seven, eight, nine-week-old pointer puppy that stops and locks up and points it, it is one of the coolest things that anyone has ever seen, right? <laughs> and what I think is so cool about it, and this is my dog nerd, you know, geeking out, is that puppy has no idea why he's doing it, right? That is breeding. That is genetics. You know, something inside of him is telling him to stop. And that is a super, super cool thing. But what happens is that people overdo it, you know? So you do it the first time. Well, then you want to show you know, mom and dad, then you want to show your buddies. Then all of a sudden, then you're all of a sudden you're doing this so much. And, and I do think that especially, you know, we as, as breeders are breeding what I think are more and more intelligent dogs all the time, which is great for these breeds. But on the flip side of it, we're, we can also develop bad habits very easily and very quickly. So this wing on a string, I do believe it does promote sight pointing. And so what happens is you start into your bird work naturally even though that nose is turned on and might flashpoint it, all of a sudden he's creeping in trying to see it, right? And then all of a sudden you have to work and you, you kind of dig yourself a little bit of a hole. Now, will it ruin the dog? More times than not, no, right? But why create a hurdle that you're going to have to you know, leap over later on if you can avoid it? You know, I, I, I say the same thing about retriever puppies. Like when you take a retriever puppy home and you throw and throw and throw and throw and throw to the point that your puppy even gets sick of it at times, there's no reason that you're doing that other than to verify to yourself that I just purchased a retriever, right? If you've done your homework and you've got the right genetics and you've done that, you, you've got it, right? Now it's about developing, not creating bad habits, setting yourself up for the future. And I just don't think that wing and string does that when you look at the long-term trajectory. So when we want to move beyond the wing on a string scenario, like when should people first be introducing their, their dog to live birds and, and what's the best way for them to do that? Tom, you want to take this? Yeah, one? sure. You bet. Well, let, let's go with retriever and, and, and I'll, I'll kind of go through our progression on a retriever. And then, uh, so what I, what we'll do with a, a young puppy is, is we'll introduce him to a wing seven weeks. We'll, we'll flip a little wing out, let him grab it and uh, you know come back with it or possess it all all i'm doing there is i'm just unlocking that one thing i'm unlocking the smell of a bird he's got it in his mouth i'm, I'm just unlocking that part am i gonna I, I don't need to do it a bunch and i think that that's what most people do let me keep throwing it throwing it throwing it so i've unlocked that instinct then what i'll do on a flushing dog I'll take that same wing and I'll put it on a string and a rod. Once he's, once I've given a few tosses, I know he wants to possess it and I'll scamper it along the ground and let him chase and catch. So what I'm creating right there in a real controlled environment is I'm going to let him chase and catch that wing. And that wing isn't going to put up any kind of a fuss where it might get flapped in the face with the wing. So I don't want anything to go wrong because I'm building confidence. This is a little puppy. So once I've got them so they'll chase and catch that, I don't, I, and, and I, I want to reiterate, I don't need to keep doing it because the more you do it, you may create some other problems, you know, like being too mouthy and so on. But what I've done right then is I've prepped them so several months down the line, um, you know, I might start going to a frozen pigeon, let them pick it up in a controlled environment, carry it, bring it back. And then they're set up for a live clip wing pigeon that flaps along the ground and they can catch it. So I want to make sure that they never have a bad experience early on. That's my first thing, say like with a retriever puppy. Because you could, if you do a bad bird introduction where he gets hit in the face as a little one and has a bad experience, now you've got to try to convince him mentally 
that it's not a problem. I don't want that. Um, you know, and, and so everybody's a little different on what they do. I don't like all of those things. All I want to do is unlock the instinct and then I can leave it alone for a while. I don't need to do any more of it. I know I've opened that box up, you know, so think about if that mother was raising those puppies when, when she weans them, which means she's taken them off of nursing them. She's going to then, you know, and I'll try not to be gross. She'll catch something. It's a wild coyote, come back. They regurgitate it. Now they're starting to eat, you know, solid food. Then she'll bring something back that's dead. Okay. Then she'll bring back something that's not dead. I'm getting a little graphic here, but that's how they're learning what the next step is going to be. She's preparing them for the next step. The following step is to go out and they actually have to do it, you know, work on their own. So they'd be doing it if they were wild creatures anyway, but there's a process to that. All I'm trying to do is give them small bites of that process to open it up. So if I try to introduce that wing to a six-year-old dog that's never had anything, they'll look at it and go, what what's this? I could care less. So those instincts are right on the surface, just ready to jump out. So you... There's windows of opportunity to take care of it. I'm going to use those windows, but I'm not going to just continue to just keep over and over and over again. You know, too much, too much is not good. Small bites of these things I feel is important. So you, you touched base on kind of windows of opportunity for, for these young dogs. Um, in the past couple of weeks, I've personally had a, one conversation I've seen it brought up online as well in terms of you have new hunters that already have a certain breed at home that should be a bird hunting dog, but they weren't into it when they got it as a puppy. So now they have a two and a half year old GSP at home, or they have a, a three year old Springer at home. Is there anything they can do to see if they could possibly create a bird dog or is, is it too late already? Or what would you suggest they do if they're curious to see if they could unlock that dog's potential at an older age? Josh, you have any thoughts there? Yeah, well, one, I think it depends on a little bit breed specific. And the reason I say that is because if you have a pointing dog, pointing is an instinct. It is not something that you're going to go fabricate and teach and make. And not let me say, you can teach them to stop descent, but I'm not going to be happy with it. You're not going to be happy with the dog. You know, it's just not the same, right? So that point instinct has to be there. Some dogs, you know, do hold on to that and, you know, they're pointing leaves in the yard and you know birds in the yard and everything else and yeah you can take that drive and then funnel it right but if they have no instinct and no desire to start them at a later age it just gets more and more difficult to bring that out of them and at some point you may not be able to or it just may not be worth going down that road right um i would say same for a retriever if you have a retriever at home that has zero interest in going to retrieve yeah, you might you might have missed the boat a little bit on it. But if you have a dog that you know is chasing you know tennis balls like crazy, you know wants to chase the frisbee, you know that kind of stuff, and now you're saying, hey, I want to make you a, a gun dog, and you're say two years old. Well, yeah, you can take that drive and now funnel it into it's just funneling it into a different object, right? So now, but here's the deal: I would still I would still uh, progress through as if that dog was a puppy. And the big reason, just to kind of echo some of what Tom was saying, was. You're building confidence is what you're doing. I'm not going to take that that two-year-old dog and say, hey, because we're starting this at two instead of four months, uh, we're going to start you off with a Canadian goose instead of a pigeon. 
right? I mean, that, that's just not a logical thought process, right? It's still, you know, I, I really like the, uh, the verbiage crawl, walk, run, right? Because it's just, it kind of shows that progression of where you have to start versus where you ultimately want to be. But it, it, it's the steps that you take to get there. And even with an older dog, you still have to, you backpedal. And I would even argue, you may have to take those steps at a slower speed because you don't have that youth, that enthusiasm and everything else to lean on, you know, as you do with that young pup. Tom, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. There's a lot of, lot of good stuff there. And, and really, every one of, every, I don't care what breed it is, they're all predators. I don't care if it's a chihuahua. They're all canines. They're all come out of predator now. Some, some have been developed. Obviously, these hunting dogs over the years to bring out more predator drive. But uh, we'll get older dogs in that come in, and we put them through a bird and gun introduction program, like we do when five-month-old dogs come in. We introduce them to birds, break into the gun, because two things: we're going to find out in a two-week span. You know, do you have a hunting dog or not? A hunting dog has got to have bird drive and desire. And it's got to be introduced properly to the gun. With those two things, you know you have a hunting dog. You don't have a trained dog, but yet you know that you will have a hunting dog there. So an older dog, think of that instinct. When I said we throw that wing for that seven-week-old puppy, that instinct is sitting right up on top. It's right on top of the surface. All you need to do is just these little introductions, bang, it comes out. Now, with every month that goes on, that instinct starts getting down further. It's down further underneath. It's down further. Every year, it gets, it's down further. And trying to dig it up, it gets harder and harder and harder again. Josh had a good comment. If your dog will chase a tennis ball, or if you had a retriever that loves to swim and go, you know, go after a stick, well, that, it's an indicator. Maybe he does, just doesn't know, you know, that a bird is what he's supposed to go in after. So then you just start replacing some of those things and see if you can get him interested in a bird. It's like if a retriever didn't want to retrieve something on land, but he loves going after a ball in the water. Maybe you can take a frozen pigeon, throw it out in the water. And when they get out there, they're swimming. They go, I either got to grab this or just leave it. They can't stand there and look at it. So you have little tricks that you can potentially pull out in them. But it's harder as they get older. But the instinct is still there but it's down under the surface. Like trying to get a kid to go out for football when he's 17. And he's never played. He's never been in sports. You know, you maybe miss that. So when it comes to natural instinct and kind of what's genetically bred into some of these dogs, two scenarios seem to bubble up a lot more um, than some other issues. And that's, A, my dog is running too big. How do I train it to recall better? or B, my dog isn't running big enough. It seems like people are, very few people land right where they want to be. It's either scenario A or scenario B. Is that, are either of those scenarios fixable in your minds or is that kind of inherently the way the dog is and you almost need to adjust to that? Josh, what do you think? Well, so when, when we talk about big running, I assume we're talking about pointing dogs. So. You know, this goes back to, again, you know, when I was field trialing off horseback, if your dog didn't have the run in it, I mean, you, you weren't going to take a dog that was naturally close range and just completely stretch them out, right? And big is all relative. You know, you're talking, what's big, 100 yards, or is it a half mile, or is it a mile? You know, it, you know it's hard to, to see what big is. Like, if you have a dog that's close ranging that you want to work out another 30, 40, 50 yards, I do think you can build that confidence by loosening the reins and allowing them to do that. But to stretch them out 
way out there, that that's inside of them. That's genetics. I mean, we have, we had dogs from, you know, all different breeds that, you know, whether they were Britney's, short hair, setters, that if their mom and dad ran big, it was like you hit that whistle and they were gone. I mean, it was just inside of them that they wanted to go stretch it out. Right. And then you'd have, you know, same breed, different breedings, right. Different lines, maybe closer ranging dogs that naturally they just didn't get it. Like they wanted to quarter back and forth. They wanted to hunt in close, which fits some people's you know, hunting. Um, you know, so it really all depends, but I think, I think really when it comes down to it, this is genetics. Tom, you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And, but, uh, and then another thing is if, if we're talking to the hunting community versus trial versus, you know, hunting big prairie, most of the people prefer a dog that hunts medium range or short because their hardest thing is going to be a long ranging dog. But that used to be a big thing when I first started training because how fast could you run to go catch them to get them back in range? Now with the equipment that we have, there, there really shouldn't be a dog that's out of control. With remote training collars, that that leveled the playing field. That you decide where that range is going to be if you have a dog that's ranging too big, and then you can set that parameter where it is. And a lot of cases with people starting with a young dog, I mean, just starting hunting, he's too close, he's just right. Oh, he's perfect. He's a little further out than what I'd like, and then it's like, oh, where is he? So. That's a progression, say, like for a flushing breed. So that area where you say he's just right, just hold your breath. Because pretty soon, if he has some drive, he's going to be pushing that boundary. But equipment took care of that. Equipment took care of too long, too far. So And then getting him to go out and hunt a little further is, is always just let the reins off. Let the reins off a little bit. You know, let them, let them go. Don't, don't try to over control them. Back in the day, a lot of people tried to over control because they were, they feared losing control. If I have a young dog now, even if it's a retriever, you know, and I say, you know, I might take him out for, you know, even though I've got him totally under control, all his drills in training. And now we're starting his hunting. You know, I say, I'm going to, I'm going to let him go. And you know, so if if you're fine with that for this hunt, I'm going to let him, he's going to range out more than, than I want. But I'm, I'm trying to build that that little bit extra range, and then I'll pull it in. Because if you squash them too early with control, they're going to be walking at your boot heels. All you yeah, did was tell them, I don't want you hunting. Yeah, to, to add to that, I think anyone, again, this is assuming that we're talking about pointing dogs because I haven't met a guy yet that's like, I want my, my retriever to run big. Um, yeah, unless we're talking about like a big blind retreat, but I don't think we're talking about that in this case. So, um, I think the only reason that someone would really be, um, be upset with their dog ranging too much, again, a pointing dog is because they're fearful of the dog getting away from them. Right. But to Tom's point, especially, you know, we'll give sport dog a plug here being that, you know, they're who sponsored you know, this episode is now with the GPS collars. There should be no reason that you lose your dog. And if you've done all of your work, right, if you know your dog is solid on birds, he's steady, why does it matter? Why does it matter if he's two, three, four hundred yards away? When he finds a bird, he should still be standing there on that bird when you get there, right, if you've done your work. And so that's where, you know, to me, you know, letting a dog be as natural as they can, again, in this specific situation, is a huge benefit. Because like Tom said, 
if you have a, a dog that naturally wants to range big, but you are continuously hammering on them to rein them in, eventually they're going to be walking at your heels because they don't know why they're being corrected, right? Something inside of them is telling them to run, right? And this is why doing your, your puppy shopping properly going into this is so important. If you want a dog that works 50 yards ahead of you, well, don't get a, a shadow oak bow, you know, two-time national champion, you know, horseback trial puppy, right? You know, get a dog that is bred more for what you're looking for. But setters are so cute. <laughs> uh, um, don't, don't get my no, wife on that one. <laughs> no, you, you, you bring up a good point because you have to do the work too, right? Because I remember the first time I ever saw really well-trained, big running GSPs. You know, they were 200, 300 yards out and they'd lock up and they wouldn't move no matter what happened. Anything could happen in the world. Those dogs would still be standing there until the handler walked up and released them. And for me, the average, the world's most average handler, when I saw that, like my jaw hit the ground. I was like, geez, if, if my dog goes on point, I'm not running with a loaded firearm, but I'm moving pretty darn quick <laughs> to get there. <laughs> right. I don't have that level of confidence in, in my pup's staunchness. So it's, it's a good reminder that no matter the breeding, no matter the, the natural abilities that your dog may have, it's all going to come down to you and or the trainers that you're utilizing to bring out that dog's full potential because uh, they're, they're pretty good reflections of ourselves yes. at, at, at a certain level. Um, but Tom, you, you brought up e-collars, so let's uh, stick with that for, for a moment. What What is the right age to starting or to start training with an e-collar? Do, do you feel there is a right or wrong age? Well, that'll vary, but the, the, here's, here's what I use is your dog needs to be, you know, trained a hundred percent manually on obedience first, manually meaning leash, get your dog knowing all of the basic commands on leash. So the dog is, is solid and somebody go, yeah, he's 10 weeks old. He's like ready to go. No, you need, you need time and you need these, these young dogs to mature enough to the point where they know all their commands. And the collar can only be used to reinforce what they've already been taught. Okay. It, I don't, I don't call it a teaching tool. It reinforces what your dog has already been taught. So you can take a puppy and I'll tell if you're going to be, have your dog on a remote collar, which there's no reason not to have a remote collar dog. Now these collars are so good. You can turn them down so low that if you had your fingers on the contact points and I push the button, you'd, you'd ask me if I turned the collar on. It's, it's that light. So you can, you can gradually increase it to the point where you, the first indication your dog might blink or he might scratch his ear with his hind leg going like, well, I felt something. And that's the beginning stage. But, you know, you have to have a break-in period too. So I'm going a little long here on this. But, you know, at uh, 12 weeks old, you can put the collar on him and just go play. Okay. Get him used to knowing that every time that that collar goes on, we're going to go do something fun. You go, why would you do that? Because several months down the line, and, and I won't start, I won't start them personally till they're around seven or eight months old at least. And that's, these dogs are solid, lots of drive, uh, and I've done all of my homework. But you want them to think that when the collar goes on, it gives them freedom. And you go, well, I don't want them to think that. I want them to think it means control. Well, what happens when you take the collar off? 
they go, well, I don't have, you know, now I, if the dog thinks all I have to do is listen when it's on, as soon as you take it off, they're not going to listen. So my dogs have no idea that when the collar goes on them, it means they have to be under control. And so if I do a seminar and somebody says, yeah, I got one of those collars, it's great. If my dog's not listening, I just hold it up and show it to him and he pays attention. I go, you did it wrong. So you have to have a break-in period where they wear it, they have fun, they look forward to you putting it on. When I do a seminar and I bring the collar out and I hold it up and my dog comes running to me, jumping up and down, people think, you know, the dog's crazy. But he knows that that's going to give him something fun. So that that's really the key. But I, I would say every dog's going to be different, but you have to do all your manual training first. So when you reinforce, start with the leash and the remote collar, the dog understands what to do. Okay. So it's not a shortcut, but I'll tell you what it, I mean, there is no, I don't care if it's a pet chihuahua, whatever it is. There's no excuse for somebody not having a dog that can operate off leash nowadays. Zero. So knowing that the, the e-collar itself isn't uh, a shortcut and you know, that won't uh, make up for lack of training or lack of a foundation. Um, Josh, I'm kind of curious, like what are some of your favorite training tools that like you just can't live without? Like if you were starting from scratch, like what, what's in your arsenal in terms of the tools you like to use to help train your bird dogs? Yeah, well, I, I'd say the, the top two are definitely a leash and a check cord. And you know, the big thing being is just like Tom had said, is that th this is where everything starts on, right? You have to teach on the lead before you go you know, to ECAR or any kind of off lead work at all, right? It has to be taught on that lead first. And I think way too often people, you know, kind of speed through that part because it's boring. I mean, there's, there's no getting around it. It is boring for us. It's boring for the dogs. I mean, it is just, it's flat out boring. But that doesn't mean you have to go through because although it's boring, it's the foundation that you are going to build everything from there forward off of. And, you know, when you look at, I have people all the time that will message me saying, hey, my dog's blowing off whistles after he gets, you know, past 100 yards. How do I fix this? Well, if he's if he's blowing it off at 100 yards, something's not done right at 10 yards, right? Like bring it in and do all this foundational stuff really, really well. You should be taking more time. And this is one thing I always preach to people that are doing their own training at home, which I think is a fantastic thing. A lot of times people are a little bashful to tell me that because they think you know, I'm going to look down at them because they're not bringing it to me for training. That's not the case at all. I love that. But you have something, a huge luxury that oftentimes I don't get or Tom doesn't get, right? Which is you don't have a timeline. The biggest enemy that I have is a timeline. And I'm to the point now that with almost every one of my clients that come in, I'm like, hey, here's the ballpark, but I'm not setting a date because if I set a date, this, this is when this, you know, this dog will be finished by, you're going to count down those days. And if there's any extra time, all of a sudden I'm a bad guy. I have to go through this at the right pace. And every dog is so different with this. You know, it's just like kids. Every, every kid goes through their development so differently than each other. Right. And so as you look back, it all starts that on lead work. It all starts with that very, very foundational stuff. And, and oftentimes, even if you have that two to three to four year old dog that is doing all the advanced work, come re come revisit that. You can never go back to that lead in that very, very foundational work, you know, too often. And I think that's the part that, you know, people want to get through that and don't think about it. But oftentimes if there's problems that come up, you can always go back to that very basic foundational work. That's great advice. So we got the, the, the leash and the check cord is, is the basis for 
for the foundation for Josh. Tom, what, what's in your arsenal? Do you have any other go-to uh, tools that you use? Well, I think it'll be different for, you know, breeder, I mean, whatever breed you're working with. So let's let's say I'll, I'll go two things. I'll go retriever. So obviously it goes back to basics, leash, check cord. I mean, those, those are just things that you have to have to begin with. Remote collar, obviously, is your, your tool that you're going to use to reinforce everything. Um, you know, retrievers, you know, training dummies, obviously, you're going to need stuff like that because you're going to be working on a lot of retrieving. Pointing dogs, you would be, you know, leash, check cord. Um, but you're not going to put a training dummy out in the backyard and your pointer's not going to go in and lock down on point. On a, on a rubber training dummy. So you're going to have to have birds. you got to have some access to live birds. You just do. Um, and then, you know, for pointing dogs, uh, remote control bird releasers are a godsend because you have to, when you're training pointers, especially if you're planting birds, you have to control the bird. Controlling the dog is one thing, but you have to be able to control the bird too. The, the reason I say that, if you have a dog that you want them to point and you want them to hold a point back at a distance. And the further away a dog will point on a bird, you got a better chance of that bird being there when you get there. The more they crowd them, that bird's going to probably be gone. So remote control bird releaser is going to put you in a position when that dog comes in downwind at 20 yards. As soon as he starts to move in, that bird's gone. I'm popping it and it's, it's gone. So he's going to learn that. I don't. Ha I can't just move in and get within two feet of him, and keep working in because that bird is going to stay there. Okay, so I have to be able to control what those birds do as well. Try to make them turn them into wild birds. Okay, and pen raised birds, you know, aren't going to aren't going to act like wild birds. That's why pigeons are are a good bird to use. Uh, quail, as long as they would fly and not go ten feet and land in a lot of cases, uh, but those are those are training pieces that you'd have to have i mean and there's lots of other things too retrievers you could have you know a, a shoulder mounted dummy launcher gun that that shoots with a 22 cartridge shoots your dummies out there long range i mean retriever training there's a ton of equipment that you have to have you know what do you have to introduce them to duck calls decoys boats ladder st you know stands for being in the water uh, there's just a million things that they have to have. I mean, so, you know, decoys, you know, goose decoys, spinning wing decoys. So there's, there's just a ton of things you have to have. But basics would be retriever, check cord, leash, remote collar, training dummies. Obviously, you got to have some birds, you know, to work on a dog. Pointers, leash, check cord, remote collar, bird releaser, and access to birds. Don't, don't think that you can pick, train your pointer without bird access. So it is the birds that makes the, the bird dogs. Um, how often do you think people need to be working with live birds during the off season just to keep their dog sharp? You know, the, the average person's pretty busy. Um, what, what should their goal be if, if they're able to get their hands on a few pigeons or, or chucker or something like that? We're talking at least once a month, Tom, or what, what do you think? Well, I mean, it depends on what you're working on. You know what I mean? Are, are, uh, is your dog, let's say you have a dog that's that's got a hunting season on him or two and say, all right, we're coming back at the end of the hunting season. you got to be truthful with yourself. Evaluate what what your problems are. Are they control related? You know, are they are they problems on birds? Are they problem with the dog crowding birds? Do you want him steady to wing and shot? You know, I mean, if 
if you want him steady to wing and shot, you're probably going to see the first thing that's going to go down the tubes when you're hunting is he's not going to be steady to shot. He's going to break. Your, your concentration is shooting the bird. The dog broke. He's already there. He's on the bird. Now are you going to discipline him when he's on the bird? And you were late to the game. So maybe you have to go back and work on steady to shot. Well, then, you you know, you need to do basic drills in the yard. And then you have to then overlay that with some birds. for You know, and that's a pointing dog. So what, what areas do you visually see that you have to go back to yard training is the basis for everything we do with every dog if you're not solid there forget about doing it out in the field you're just wasting a lot of time and effort to go out in the field to take care of some things that should be done in the yard for a retrieving dog it would be probably in the duck blind it would be steady to shot sitting next to you and not breaking so um be honest and go like truly evaluate what you're having problems with. But you can't say I'm having problems with this if you've never trained for it. I'm having tro- problems with steady to wing and shot. Well, I've never done it before. <laughs> <laughs> so well, what did you really work on? And then what can you go back and, and tune up? Because you're constantly training. Hmm. You are. I don't care how old your dog is. You're constantly tuning them up. The more time you spend with them, the more you're going to get in the long run. But when it, when it comes to maybe not something that you want to train for, but perhaps maybe you're tr- something that you're trying to, to fix, um, I, we received several questions that had to do with uh, hyper dogs or dogs that lack focus or maybe a little bit too much excitement. When you get, uh, whether it's a retriever or a pointer in your kennel, and the, the dog just seems to be going a million miles an hour and you know it's a good athlete and it's got a good heart and it's probably got a good brain too, but it's just kind of difficult to break through that excitement. Do you have any tips or tricks for the people at home that are kind of dealing with that type of bird dog as well? Here's what I would say. First off, again, I, I know I've said this a couple of times, but I do think this comes back to breeding a lot of times is that, you know, getting that right dog, getting a dog that's bred with the right temperament and so forth, I think is a big part of curbing this before you have to deal with this because, and like, this is something that nobody enjoys, right? I mean, <clears throat> if you have a dog that's in your house, and he's pacing back and forth, whining and crying and can't shut it off. Nobody loves to live with that dog, right? So, so that'd be my my very first step. From there, you, know, you talk about like, you know, like for our retrievers, a lot of times, you know, the big question in you know regards to this is whining in the duck line. Like, how do I fix this? Or I really don't think that you can. Like, I think you can work through things with some dogs and control them to a point sometimes to curb this, but again, you know, this is part one, genetics, and part two, how you brought this dog up. We go to the very beginning of this when we talked about, um, you know, if, if you remember me saying that, I think the only reason you bring a retriever home and do retrieve, 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 retrieve with this young retriever is to prove to yourself you purchased a retriever. Well, I think this is where you see the repercussions of that if you do that, right? Because if, if from day one, you throw that, that dog every retrieve that he possibly wants, and he's a retrieving nut, we hear that all the time, right? Well, now all of a sudden you start putting the reins on him, start to harness him back. He thinks everything is his. You can make a quiet dog noisy pretty quick by by creating that anxiety and anxiousness in them and then having to hold them back and having them be that rubber band that wants to snap, right? So, so progressing through things the right way is very, very important if we're dealing with something like that. And if it's something we're trying to help fix, something that we always do is just work on one, obedience, and then two, patience. So we start throwing marks for that dog. That dog might get one of every eight, nine, somewhere in there. 
he is certainly not getting everyone. He's not getting every other one. He is learning to be patient and respect whether it's me going to grab that mark, whether it's another dog going to grab that mark. We have to change his thought process to where, okay, everyone's not mine and I have to sit here and chill out. But again, and that's way easier to get ahead of that and do it the right way than having to try to fix the problem later on, especially you know, going back to wine and not trying to make this too lengthy. But you know, we're in the middle of March Madness, right? Watch, watch on the bench when you get a guy that's jacked up and he's like thinking and he's anxious and that like that foot starts going, that leg starts. I promise you, he doesn't know he's doing that. That's the anxious twitch, right? <laughs> no different than these dogs. I really don't believe that these dogs, these waterfall situations, I don't believe they even truly understand they're doing it. You know, that whine. So what happens? You correct them. What happens? You correct him. That dog is sitting in that blind doing everything he's supposed to be doing. If he doesn't put two and two together that you're correcting for that whining, then it's not going to work. And how can you correct something if he doesn't know that he's doing it? So that's my, I'll stop there because I could go a whole lot longer on this thing, but I'll stop there. That's an interesting, you know, discussion about prey drive ultimately, right? Because you're talking about how excited those dogs are. And you hear often, um, you know, that that person's dog stole the retrieve. It is there is there such a thing as a dog stealing another dog's retrieve, or is it just that dog has more prey drive? What's the what's the etiquette there? Well, what do you I think, think it Tom? depends. Josh, oh, sorry, Tom. Go ahead. What do you think, Josh? So. Um, I think, you know, situationally, you have to figure out how this works, right? So, like, if I go into the duck blind with my dog and my buddy's dog, you know, we kind of have our own etiquette that we have, right? So, if, you know, three birds come in and we knock three down, you know, I'll send my dog on the left birds, you send your dog on the right birds, whatever it is, right? But if there's a single that comes in, who gets it? Well, nobody wants, you know, the dog that is in control and hunting with your buddy's dog that's out of control because your dog never gets to retrieve, right? That to me is sealing the retrieve. That dog went without it being his or her turn to go be sent. And no, no different than a pointing dog situation. Everybody's steady through wing shot, flush, fall. Who gets that retrieve? You can't have a free for all and just, you know, rip this bird apart because they're fighting over it. And this has everything to do going all the way back to control and obedience, right? This has everything to do with why we're out there is to enjoy being out there with the dogs. And really the more under control the dogs are, the more we all enjoy it. So really going through it and from an obedience standpoint, going through it, um, that's a big piece of it. But you know, the other part, Bob, is you, you mentioned um, retrieve drive, right? You know, this is just a pet peeve of mine. Like when we get dogs that are anxious, they're out of control. They're very, you know, very whiny, very vocal, very, you know, the excuse that we have as owners is, oh, he's just got so much drive. Well, what about the dog that's sitting right next to him that's quiet as can be, that's focused, that waits until he's told that, well, he's got just as much drive as that dog. Which which of these dogs you're going to want to hunt with, hmm. right? We, I, I think sometimes we we make excuses and look at our dogs through rose-colored glasses as we, you know, as we is, should be expected, right? As our personal dogs, we love them. They're a part of our family. But sometimes to really train, and this goes back to Tom's point, of assessing your season after you're done with it and what you need to work on, be critical, be critical of, Hey, this is what we really did not a good job at. This is what we need to improve on because unless you identify it, you're never going to be able to progress. Seems like this goes a little deeper than carrying around a a spray bottle with lemon water in (laughs) in the back of your truck. (laughs) 
Be quiet, Baxter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to add, I'm going to add something if I can on that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in in a lot of cases there, the only person who's not going to complain about stealing birds, who's that going to be? It's going to be the guy who has the dog that breaks, Mm -hmm. right? He's happy as heck. His dog had a heck of a day. So unless you have a dog that's steady and then you train with that other person or train with somebody else and work on honoring, it's not going to happen. And what's going to happen is the dog who's been steady and knows how to honor, he's going to start having problems. Because after a period of time, he's he's like, all right, this isn't going to happen five times in a row. So now he's going to be tempted to break because he's competitive enough to want to retrieve. So now that that whole scenario starts to unravel on a good dog because, you know, he, he wants to make the retrieve. That's why he's there. He wants to make the retrieve. Mm-hmm. So you got two ways to fix that, actually. The, if you're hunting with your buddy who's doing it, you train together and you get this down ahead of time, they, or he puts him on a leash, tethers him off because he's not going to be steady, or you find somebody else to hunt with, or you hunt one dog at a time. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 But it's just not fair. I mean, you have to assess that too. And if you're the guy who's got a really good dog who's steady, yeah, you, you got to, you know, and if you start mentioning something about somebody else's dog, that could be a problem. You can talk about wives and kids, but you, when you when you start criticizing somebody's dog, you can have some big problems there. So, and then, you know, getting that dog to sit steady in the duck blind or just sit there and be comfortable. How often do you just have your dog sit in the chair next to you and expect him to sit there for 45 minutes without, I mean, just sitting next to you? I mean, do you do that? No. As dog trainers, you know, for, for something like that, can we spend an hour and a half having a dog sit next to us when we have all these other dogs that need to be trained? When in fact you go, what'd you do today? Well, I just had him sit next to me for 45 minutes. Well, that's what I paid for. <laughs> right. But is that, that's actually something that would need to take, you know, you should do because if you can't get him to be content sitting there with nothing going on, how do you expect it otherwise? So there, there's a lot of things there, but it, once again, it gets back to training. I mean, if you're not willing to put the time in for that that honoring and steadiness, and that goes for pointing dogs, like Josh said, and retrievers. If, if you're not willing to put them in that situation, you can't expect them to do it. That leads into the, uh, the, the pointers and flushers hunting together question pretty well for us, doesn't it, Andrew? That's, uh, that's what I'm most curious about after, after hearing that, because it's, it's clear that, well, it's no secret that every hunt or every training session, your, your dog's either taking a step forward or will hopefully not take a step backwards, but you have to think of it like that. It's, is, is my dog improving today? Am I putting it in situations to succeed? Um, personally, I, I do hunt pointers and retrievers together just based on my lifestyle, my friends, and just wanting to get out in the field. I'm curious putting you, Josh, and Tom on the spot you two specifically, do you personally do that? Or is that a big no, no, Josh, what do you think? So I, I have done it. I will do it with my dogs, but that's because I have you know, the training situations to prepare them for that going into it. If I did not, or if I was hunting with say my pointers with, you know, someone else's retrievers or vice versa, I wouldn't do it. And, and I, I very religiously, preach to my clients do not put yourself in that situation because inevitably what's your first hunt going to be almost every year 
it's the trip out to South Dakota with 14 guys and 18 dogs. And, you know, it's like, tell me one way that you come out of that, the end of that trip better than what you went into your dog. Right. And, you know, especially a pointing dog, right? Because the pointing dog could be doing everything right. Finds the bird points is steady. All of a sudden two or three retrievers come whipping through. The dog has not been prepared for this and is looking around going, well, what am I standing here for? Right. And all of a sudden that competitive comes out just like Tom had talked about with honoring. And all of a sudden you start to see things unravel. And, and this is where, you know, to me, you as the owner of the handler has to be disciplined in understanding, Hey, is my dog prepared for this or not? And really being able to step back and maybe even take yourself out of the hunt to work with the dog. That's one thing that it's so crazy to me how often we talk with people about specifically a young dog going in that first season and talk about the nightmares that came out. And I asked a question, you know, okay, well, were you shooting or were you working the dog? Well, I was shooting. I only get to hunt five, six times a year. I'm going to shoot. Well, if you're worried about that, then how can you be working? You know, how can you be focused on the dog? And if you're not focused on the dog in that first season, how is season two going to be any better or three or four? I mean, everything builds off of each other. Right. And so sometimes the best thing that you can do for your dog and the development of your dog is to step back, leave the gun at home and say, this is about him or her. And I'm going to make this you know, as, as good as I can. It's really good advice. And uh, for listeners out there uh, who are thinking, oh, my gosh, I do every, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing everything wrong. You know, all these all these answers. Um, I'm thinking that myself through a lot of these. <laughs> the way yeah, we're talking with two of the most expert dog trainers in the country and, and Josh and Tom. And these are you know, it does relate back to to the basics. You know, we've we've all made some of these same mistakes you know we have the best friend that owns labs and i own pointers and invariably we end up in the field together and you just don't want to leave one of the dogs in the truck which does relate back to josh's point it's all about the foundation that you build um, which is why we're doing this podcast in april because the sooner you can work on this um, in front of hunting season to establish that steady to wing shot and release. So the lab, the, the retriever gets to play a role and the pointer gets to play a role. That, that's, that's an incredibly important part of this recipe. I don't know. What about you, Andrew? You, aren't you listening to this thinking, oh my God, I've done a few things wrong. It's uh, reaffirming the fact that I have a, a long ways to go as a handler and that my dogs are succeeding despite myself, which is, which, which is fine. Cause we're, we're still having fun and it's, it's just great to listen to both Josh and Tom kind of validate some of my own thoughts a little bit. And then some of the scenarios they're going they're they've seen, like I've witnessed like the, the nightmare of six guys show up in South Dakota together with, you know, six dogs of varying degrees. And one guy's got the new puppy that he just lets, let's loose and he spends the entire day yelling at that puppy and it's just like holy cow bud like we and you don't want to say anything to him because you don't want to ruin his day um but it's we, we've all been there i think uh, josh and tom are doing a great job of kind of resetting expectations and being realistic with yourself because you're really only going to get what you put into it uh, I, I think that is definitely ringing true for me um but before we we kind of wrap things up here i both Tom and Josh mentioned 
they learned what not to do as well as what to do. Is there any specifics that you've seen from, or anything you've seen other handlers do or you've encountered that you would just kind of steer people away from? Like what are some of those things people shouldn't be doing? Um, Josh, do you have any, any feedback there, Tom? Yeah, well, I, you know, starting off with a new puppy, I mean, there's there's a fair amount of things not to do. Number one would be, if gun introduction would just be the biggest thing right off the bat. I could, you could buy the best bred dog in the world, get him gun shy right off the bat. You're most likely done. You're done. Before you even got started, you don't have a hunting dog. Uh, a lot of those dogs can never be pulled out of it, depending on the severity of the gun introduction. A bird introduction, also it has to be done where the dog builds confidence in that in that part of his training. So in, in, let's talk about a retriever. Um, if, if you're going to be a waterfall hunter, I mean, do you, do you pick that puppy up and throw him in the middle of the pool and see if he can, you know, swim? Well, yeah, he's going to get back to shore, but what was his first experience? I almost drowned. So a lot of times in Minnesota, you know, we say don't, you know, don't pick your puppy up and put him in the water. You know, go in the water yourself. Don't let him fall off of a dock and don't let him fall out of the boat. I mean, so gun introduction, proper bird introduction, and water introduction are important. So uh, we'll see these puppies come in and we do bird and gun. They're crazy for birds. We go to the water gradually to to do that introduction puppy goes running down there and puts on the brakes and we go, well, what's, what's with that? Make a phone call. Um, yeah. Have you had him in the water? Well, yeah, he was up at the cabin in the spring when we put, you know, put the dock in and, um, yeah, he fell in, but he made it back to shore. Well, yeah, he made it back to shore, but mentally he has this block. So now you start off with three of the most simple aspects of producing a retriever. And if you have one of those wrong, it's going to bleed into everything else you do. You know, so like I said earlier, if you have a dog that's introduced property to birds and broke to the gun, you can take them out, right? You know, whatever expectations you might have. And I want to add something to the last segment. You know, we talk about all of these things that your dog needs to do and to have this finished dog and he's honors and he does all of this great stuff. You know what it boils down to? Are you happy when you're out hunting? Are you happy when you're done? Okay. Have your expectations based on what you've done in training, but did you enjoy yourself? I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it because we talk about having this ultimate finish dog, mm -hmm. but did you enjoy it? Did you have good stories when you were all done at the end of the day? Strive for to be as best as you can, but you know, you, you want to go, you don't want to go home going like, you know what, this was, this was fun. I had a great time with my dog. That's what it should be. Really, really good points. Just to tack on to the, the gun introduction, um, literally 10 times a year, I get emails from people with dogs that uh, are gun shy and they're like, well, I went to the shooting range and had my pup in the truck in the kennel. So it felt safe. Like, do not take your dog to the shooting range and leave it in the kennel in the parking lot. That's like a surefire way to end up with a, a gun shy dog. I mean, you guys must see that um, constantly. Josh, you wanted to make a point. Well, yeah. Well, one of the things that I'd say, just kind of going back to, you know, when Andrew, you and, you and Bob were kind of going over the, uh, the, you know, the shock factor of, oh my gosh, you did everything wrong. 
here's what's so cool about these dogs nowadays, especially with these really well-bred, intelligent dogs. They're extremely forgiving. As long as you didn't lose your temper and do something that you can't reverse, you're fine. You can always go back. It might take more work, but you always need to go back. And, and that's what's so funny is that Tom, like Tom said, we can give you know, the advice of here's what I would do to get that finished dog. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to listen you know, to all this advice for one, whether, it, whether it's because of fit, whether it's because of time. I just had a client drop off a dog the other day that, uh, that, you know, he's like, Josh, want to you know, get all your advice and I'll do a hundred percent of everything that you say. I said, okay. So when, when you pick your dog up and I say, don't hunt him this, this year, are you going to do that? He's like, uh, why, why would I, you know? And so, you know, and I'm a real big, I'm really big on not hunting your dog that first year. You know, that's a whole nother topic, but, um, but that that's kind of the point is that, you know, you're going to hunt the dog. You're going to have some stuff. Now it's your expectation, right? Like my expectations have to change because of that crazy South Dakota hunt that everything was out of control, right? My expectation has to change because I didn't pay attention to the dog and he broke every time on our waterfall hunts, right? You just you have to change you know, your approach every time, every season to say, here's what happened. Here's what I need to do to get better for next season. But then kind of going back to you, yeah, Andrew, your question of, um, of kind of like what not to do and, and, you know, the advice that way. I, I just did um, one of my own podcasts on this and it's actually uh, something that kind of came out of my mouth. I didn't plan it and it came out and I just, I've loved it. So I've really kind of kept repeating it, which is um, don't focus on the finished product. Right. And, and the, the saying that I'd like to say here is in, enjoy, uh, enjoy the process, not the result because everyone's definition of finished is different. Even when you get to finished, there's still going to be other things you want to polish up. There's always going to be that one extra step, that one more thing you want to accomplish or that one more thing you want to be able to do. And so if you're always looking towards the finish line that you're never going to reach, it's going to be frustrating. But if you can sit back and enjoy the process and understand, Hey, I haven't had a puppy in 10 years. I forgot what it was like. Oh, now we're into, you know, this, this uh, frustrating phase where, you know, maybe he's just not as driven as I want. Like, how do I get that out of him? And then you go, if you enjoy the process, you're going to love it. But if you're focused on that finish line, you're never going to reach. It's going to continue to be a frustration. No, that's, a, that's phenomenal advice because that's how you also survive some of the, the setbacks that you're going to encounter here and there, right? It's, uh, well, I still really enjoyed spending a Wednesday evening in the middle of summer just running my dog and some, some dummies. You know, was he perfect? No, but we had a great evening. And we're, we're getting better every day. Um, so that, that's a really good point, Josh, that nobody's perfect. No dog is perfect. And no matter how good you think you are, there's probably somebody warming up with your PR out there somewhere. So <laughs> there's always, something better. So just keep, keep it real. <laughs> so if folks want to ask you questions, each of you directly, um, how do they how do they contact you, Tom? Let's start let's start with you, Tom. If if people have additional questions and want to reach out, how do they get a hold of Tom Dockin? Well, they can send an email down to the kennel and uh, you know, we'll answer we'll answer questions via email if it it warrants a uh, phone conversation. Uh, it will. Emails are kind of easy because I think as Josh knows too, you get in a conversation and it it can end up in an hour. I mean, you know, real easily. Uh, but emails, uh, we can give a, a good, you know, good answer and kind of assess. We want to assess where you're at more than anything else. Um, uh, 
one thing I'd like to say is I think the dogs are better that we get now because I think people are more educated on when things need to start. We don't get a lot of three, four-year-old dogs that are coming in for training. People now are, they're, they're, they've learned that we need to call somebody early and figure out what the next step is. And I think a part of that is being in the business long enough, your customers end up knowing, you know, on the next dog, you know, here's when these programs start. So, uh, and then there's a lot of great information out there, you know, on the internet too. So, um, you know, nowadays there's, there's so much more than when I started. So, but take advantage of it. I mean, even get an evaluation with your dog with a pro, even if you're not going to leave them there. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's worth its weight in gold because they'll evaluate a pro seen thousands of dogs. He'll say, well, what do you want to do? Well, let me see where your dog's at. Um, then send you home, let you do your own homework if that's what you like to do. Hmm. What should a um, owner's expectation of, a, of an evaluation be? Is there a cost, a time associated with that? Well, there is. We're providing a service, which trainers do, and you're buying that service. Um, you know, it depends on, you know, the kennel, you know, that you're doing it. You know, 75 to to $100 an hour is, is pretty much the norm. Uh, but you, you, you'll want to have it worked out ahead of time where, where you want to be. But then, you know, you have to be realistic when you come down and say, here's where I want to be versus, and then the trainer's going to go, well, here's where you're at. Mm. You know, I want to be in high school. Well, you're like in second grade right now, you know, but here's what it'll take to get up to that <laughs> next level. But it'd be, it's worth it because yeah. you could spin your wheels in a lot of cases versus somebody saying, well, here's your, here's, here's a program that now you need to follow when you get home. We wouldn't probably suggest somebody coming week after week after week. We'll see where you're at. You should be doing this for 30 days, this particular set, then let us know where you're at. And then as you get more to the finish stage where you're getting really close to the end line, you're probably going to have to see somebody a little more often because now you're fine tuning. Yeah. That's good guidance that I haven't heard a whole lot before, but that, that's a, that's really nice for the, the hunter who wants to train the dog themselves. But, you know, it, we're all different learners, like whether YouTube or reading a book and, and having a little one-on-one -on -one instruction just for an hour or two to get some guidance from a, from a pro could, you know, shorten the learning curve by a long ways. Yeah. It also helps. And then Josh knows this too. I mean, we have dogs that are in for training that people are, you know, have their dogs in and they're paying on a monthly basis. So availability is a big thing though, too, mm -hmm. you know, for a pro to take an hour out of his daily training. I mean, he, you got to kind of keep that in mind too, if you're looking for lessons, right. you know, availability. Josh, if folks want to, to, ask you some specific questions or learn more about Riverstone, how do they reach you? Yeah, well, they can find us uh, on you know, Instagram and Facebook, Riverstone Kennels. We do a lot of content on there, specifically on our stories. Um, yeah, especially over COVID, we did a lot of, uh, of here's what you can do at home, you know, style of training. So I would go check that out because you probably find some really, uh, really significant stuff there. But, um, but I'd, I'd agree with Tom, you know, it's sometimes it is difficult just time wise, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and, you know, Lord knows we, uh, we work as much of them as we can the way it is. Um, but the other thing that I think, you know, going to a pro and seeing them work, what it does is it gives you maybe a truer evaluation of where your dog is because you get to see not just your dog, but, you know, 10, 20, 30 other dogs 
And, you know, there are oftentimes we've had people come in that's like, you know, my dog, you know, you'd think they could walk on water by, you know, by the time they get done explaining where their dog's at. And then they go out the field and see the other dogs. And they're like, oh, like, they're really not, I guess, close to where I thought they were, which is great. I mean, it's a great reality check, you know, for you to say, hey, here's where I thought I was. Here's where I really am. And here are the steps I need to get there. And like you said, you know, Bob, I think that was a great point is everybody learns differently. Like some people can't read a book and then go apply it. Right. Some people can you know, watch a video you know, and go apply it. Sometimes seeing it and watching why you, you do what you do is really important. Um, yeah. Like like Tom said, if it, the time is the hardest part. We get a lot of people that want to do that. And I wish I could help everyone. Um, but, yeah, it's always a good option if you can find that. Another way to find some some expert advice is uh, through one of our partners in Bird Dogs for Habitat, and that's the NAVDA, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. And there's lots of groups you know, that are like NAVDA based on the type of dog and, and um, skill set that you want, um, you know, whether that's uh, AKC, uh, retriever groups, uh, Nastra, there's all sorts of them. So you can find a lot of support through a group of people that train dogs themselves. And um, NAVDA is, just happens to be a wonderful partner of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever as well. And you can find them online. Uh, Andrew, I, I'm guessing you're you're holding back a, a question or two for us to um, close out the episode with. Well, if we're, uh, if, we're, if we're there, I was holding on to this one, Bob, just because of, of your experience. And I, I, I don't want, I didn't want you to outshine Josh or Tom here. Um, but that's not possible. Is, so I don't know where you're going. <laughs> my dog will not leave skunks alone. Is there any way to discourage him from going after skunks? I, I know you have a, a robust history with skunks. And we also got this question about porcupines too. So I guess I'll, I'll leave this with the group. Is there anything you can do to try and counteract your, your dog's desire to tangle with those two uh, animals? <laughs> Help me, Tom. Well, Help I've, me. I've, I've got a, I've got a good story, I guess, on that one. Clay Thompson, which you know from sport dog, uh, he had his young Labrador retriever and, and this was out in South Dakota and I had an adult dog and we're hunting the edge of this cattail slough. My dog goes in and he comes back out and, you know, and I go, Oh no. I mean, he got hit, you know, square on mm. just, I mean, he was green when he came running back to us and, um, you know, Clay's there and he goes, boy, I bet he'll never do that again. And I'll go, well, when you were younger, you maybe went out and had a few too many and got sick the, the next night or that night. Did you quit? And he went, well, no, I didn't. The next day, that same dog <laughs> got it. He just got it again. But, I mean, you could do avoidance training with a remote collar, and this would be something for running deer, running things where once your dog is conditioned, you could, if you see the setup coming, you would want to go on a high intensity then mm. and, give a, and give a correction. So you'd have avoidance training there. But, and then have a you know, good skunk formula. You know, that's something that everybody should have. I mean, because invariably, if you hunt enough, it's, it's just going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. So, um, you know, get get your uh, hydrogen peroxide, baking soda, 
um, and dishwashing soap, have that stuff with you, um, mix it up and, and take care. But it's going to happen. If you're an upland hunter, it's going to happen. I mean, it's just the way it is. But if you see it happening, you can, with your remote collar, just go ahead and set it up and make a good correction. Deer, rabbits, skunks, raccoons, all of those things, that would be making a high-level negative correction. And you don't have to say anything. You're better off even not saying anything. So, Ooh. yeah. So I've every single short hair I've ever had has been skunked. <laughs> um, and many of them multiple times. To your point, they they for whatever reason they go back. It's not it's not that pain. <laughs> it's not as painful for them as it is for us. Uh, but thankfully, and I'm going to knock on wood. Um, typically, I've experienced one porcupine encounter per short hair, and then they tend to ease up on the porcupine. So maybe that one does. Uh, maybe there's a little bit more of a negative reaction. Although I've hunted with, uh, again, Andrew alluded to this guy before, John Zeman and his short hairs, who are phenomenal. They'll lock on point, but they're also, they're also um, they just attack porcupines when they see them. And I know it's happened multiple times. So it probably ends up being a little bit of a prey drive based on each individual dog. Uh, thankfully, one by one at a time for me with each of those porcupines. What, what are you guys, is that true? It's more of an individual thing in your view? What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I, I think it is. And, you know, I, I'd say there might be some difference between, you know, a porcupine, you know, versus a skunk. But then you know, we hear of dogs, you know, specifically wire hairs um, that tend to really continue to go after, you know, porcupines, raccoons, you know, and it's hard to blame them. Right. I mean, that's kind of part of part of that background that they have. And, you know, it's just it's one of those things, like Tom had said, you can do avoidance trading and we, we would do this like snake breaking a dog. Like mm. you want to you want to make it where, you know, the repercussion is not worth the, that temptation of going and checking that out, because obviously we know the dangers that a snake can have. Well, you know, a porcupine quill in the eye, you know, very similar in the wrong spot in the mouth or throat. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that can go on there. And so, you know, this is where um, this is where you, know, you would you know use, like Thomas said, you can use the collar to do this. But we'd use it very differently than any other time that we would do, it, which is, you know, any time, you know, that they would come close to that. If you can make that heavy correction, they start associating it going, oh, maybe I don't want anything to do with that. And, and that's ultimately where you'd like to go. But. You know, it's different unless you unless you have a buddy that has a porcupine as a pet. You know, it's hard to do that. You know, at least you can find somebody, which is not me. I don't want to be anywhere near a snake. But at least you can find enough people to have, you know, that that do want to be that you can say, hey, if you can bring them over, I'll, I'll pay you. And I just go through my snake breaking and make it so these dogs don't want anything to do with them. Yeah. Well, fellas, uh, I know how busy you both are with uh, with all the dogs you're training. And you always answer the call for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever to do these podcasts, to help us out on, on KFAN radio interviews at National Pheasant Fest and, and Quail Classic, um, the donations that uh, you, you guys have made to our fundraisers. Um, sincerely, thank you on behalf of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever for your time. Really appreciate your commitment to our organizations. 
Well, thanks, Bob. And then uh, also people, uh, you know, I want to thank Sport Dog for being part of this too. And and one last thing that they can go to Sport Dog because they have some training clips on there as well on how to introduce your dog to the collar. So they're, I mean, not only do they provide product, but also some insight on what to do too. Do you guys have a favorite Sport Dog e-collar that you point people towards specifically? My, mine is the 1825. I love that collar. Um, I love the simplicity of it. I love that it's got that one mile range. A lot of people go, oh my gosh, my dog's a mile away. I've got bigger problems, which is, is certainly true. But yeah, I kind of look at it like you know, insurance. I'd rather have more than enough and never need it than you know, not have it and, want, and wish I had it. So uh, I love that 1825. It's what I recommend to a lot of people. It's got tone, vibration, as well as, you know, the, the levels of simulation. And that's what's so great about those levels is that you can train any dog with it, you know, nowadays. And, um, you know, so to, to echo what Tom had said, you know, thank you for Sport Dog for all that they do, you know, for Pheasants Forever, uh, for, you know, Habitat, you know, in general, you know, they're really out there, you know, working the conservation groups and, you know, helping them be as productive as possible because let's, let's face it, you know, we're all in this together. Yeah, as where we look at outdoorsmen and conservationally, we're all in this together. So the more that we can do uh, to help build up, I mean, it's it's going to benefit us all. Right on. All right, folks. Um, thank you once again. Thank you to Sport Dog Brand E Collars for uh, sponsoring this particular episode of On the Wing Podcast, and I'll point you all towards BirdDogsForHabitat.org, uh, where you can make a donation on behalf of your favorite breed of bird dog. $1 equals one vote. It's a popularity contest with a purpose. That purpose is our habitat mission. Um, thanks to all bird dogs for habitat sponsors, including Sport Dog, Purina Pro Plan, Orvis, who is supplying us our um, uh, personalized dog collars for the member premium, the member drive happening this month. Rufflin Kettles, Project Upland, and the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. Thank you to the listeners for supplying Andrew with all of our questions for today's Ask the Experts episode of On the Wing podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise.